Dr. Isaac, dial zero. The Brent Community Healthcare System presents Hospital Insider, the podcast. Your host is Gary Chalk, the retired director of public affairs for the Brandt Community Healthcare System, a newspaper columnist, and former radio broadcaster. The podcast features conversations with members of the medical staff, the caregivers, volunteers, the leadership team, and donors of the Brantford General Hospital and the Willett Hospital in Paris. Listening to Hospital Insider, the podcast, will inform and educate you about hospital care. So please share this podcast with your family and friends and encourage them to subscribe as well. Remember, if it has to do with hospital care in Brantford, Paris, and throughout Brant County, we will talk about it on Hospital Insider, the podcast. Welcome everybody to episode number five of Hospital Insider, the podcast. I'm Gary Chalk. Guest today, old friend of mine, I don't want to say an old friend, uh, a friend we've known each other for, for many years, let's put it that way, Dr. Ross Penny, a colleague from, uh, well, I think we both retired almost pretty close to each other back in 2010. Welcome, Ross. Ross uh, trained initially as a pediatrician, went on to become an internationally recognized infectious disease specialist, worked as a medical practitioner, an educator, a researcher, throughout Canada, the United States, and down into St. Lucia, Brazil, Angola, Malaysia. As I said, we first met back in 2003. That was when SARS swept through much of North America and beyond, I guess. Uh, Ross was uh, practicing in Hamilton, was also at the time a professor at uh, uh, McMaster School of Medicine. Had you ever experienced anything like SARS in your in your career at that time? Yes, I experienced a polio epidemic when we when I worked in Papua New Guinea in the 1970s. All of a sudden, out of out of the blue, come a number of cases of polio in unvaccinated children, and. At that time, we were not immunizing children globally against measles. Uh, measles was uh, a vaccine for the, the uh, rich countries, but it had not made it to the poor countries yet. And so I experienced for two years an ongoing uh, measles epidemic, uh, hundreds of cases of measles. So I was used to looking after uh, people and communities where a disease comes and makes a lot of people sick at the same time. How concerned were you, Ross, at the time with SARS? We were very concerned. Uh, it's a bit selfish to say it, but we were concerned because so many healthcare workers were getting SARS and dying. Uh, one doesn't expect to die of measles. Uh, and as a healthcare worker, you're protected because you've been immunized or you've had the disease as a child already. But with SARS, it was something very different. There was no treatment. People were put in intensive care units and given all kinds of drugs that didn't work for them. And 44 healthcare workers died in Toronto during the SARS epidemic, which is really quite terrifying. Ross went on to make the transition from meaningful, meaningful career in medicine to meaningful career in, in retirement. We'll, we'll talk about that. And I think the big thing in retirement is the, the writing, a very successful career, writing medical mysteries. But let's go back to your graduation you, uh, from medical school, Queens and Kingston. You're 25 years old. That's you, uh, you graduate, you join, sign up with CUSO International and you end up going right away to the remote jungles of New Guinea, and you're the only doctor. And then your first book, 
probably 25 or 30 years after that experience came out. It was called The Unforgiving Tides and was published in 2009. I'd like to just read something that it said in that book. This is you. It was an uneventful story, or, or rather an uneventful stay, except I faced amputating a woman's leg with a hacksaw. I performed my first appendectomy during an earthquake. The hospital was turned into a temporary tavern to treat alcohol poisoning victims. I developed a, a milk formula that saved the lives of scores of malnourished children. I grappled with culture shock, the indifference to my efforts, and I encountered a life-altering crisis that left me questioning why I'd ever gone to New Guinea in the first place. What got into your mind to go to New Guinea? Well, that's where CUSO were sending young people uh, after university as teachers, engineers, uh, planners, uh, nurses, and doctors. Each year, it seemed CUSO had a different focus. And uh, during those years, in the mid to late 70s, Papua New Guinea was the focus. Uh, they had a very good liaison between various religious groups and government groups in Papua New Guinea who were interested in, in development and the uh, government of Canada through CUSO, which was officially a non-governmental organization. And when, at that time when you were interested in going with CUSO, they, uh, they would send you somewhere and you didn't have a whole lot of choice. You could decide you didn't want to go, but they, they would provide that the, uh, this is the place that needs you and this is what we're offering. And so 35 of us went uh, in the summer of 1977 altogether uh, out of Ottawa. We had an orientation program and then all of a sudden we get on a plane and we all end up in Papua New Guinea together. When you got off that plane and the runway in New Guinea, did you really know what you were getting into? I had no idea what I was getting into. I had a brief description of the job. It said I would be the fifth uh, doctor joining four other Canadian doctors, two couples. Uh, two doctors who were family doctors from Canada and then a Canadian pediatrician and a Canadian surgeon and I would be eased in. They would gradually leave and, and they would teach me what I needed to know in this very strange place from a point of culturally and medically. And when I got there, the priest who picked me up at the local airport said, well, the others have all left. They left <laughs> two weeks ago. And oh, when are they coming back? They're not coming back. And who else is going to be there? Nobody else. It's you. Uh, I arrive. The, the matron or head nurse of the hospital is a, is a German nun. And she says, uh, you've had a long journey, doctor. Uh, please take a few moments to relax and meet me in 30 minutes <laughs> at, the, at the hospital. We have a clinic arranged for you. Welcome to the world of medicine. Yes, yes. The, the, the book has a lot of very, very gripping stories. There's no doubt about it. And uh, I remember the one, and many of them come back to my mind when I think about it, the one where you had to convince the staff in the hospital that the children needed more than medicine. They needed milk. Talk to me a little bit about what you developed and how you wanna, went about selling this this uh, nourishing milk as medicine so that they would give it to these children who are desperately in need of it. It was a very good hospital that provided surgery and nursing care and medications, but they, uh, the families were expected to look after the sort of social and day-to-day -day needs of the patients. So they would bring their own linens 
and they would bring their own food. There was a cookhouse with open fires for the, the families to cook the meals for the patients, but the hospital did not provide the food. And so when the malnourished children would come, uh, there was no food provided for them. They were expected, uh, it was expected that the mothers would provide the food. The problem with malnutrition was the mothers at home were not providing food. So what were they supposed to do in the hospital? Or if they were providing food, it was not uh, the right kind of food. It was not intensive enough in calories and protein. And so I was there many months watching this and, and uh, I had to get the confidence of the, of the matron and the other nurses uh, before I could bring up something as radical as providing the, the food. And I had a very good little pamphlet from Uganda that I'd got from an agency in London, England. And it looked like we'd be able to make this fortified milk formula that had worked so well for this exact same malnutrition problem in Uganda. But uh, I needed the matron to go on side because where were we to get the powdered milk and we had to add uh, vitamins to it and potassium and we had to make it up in, in, and uh, we had to administer it according to fairly strict guidelines because these kids are on the edge of disaster. They're almost dead, these children, and if you don't do, it, do the refeeding correctly, they go into heart failure because they can't cope with the liquid that you give them in the milk. So it has to be done very carefully. And you have to record it very carefully, and you have to weigh the children very carefully. So it's very much therapy. And so I had to convince them that, that these children were dying, they could see them dying before their very eyes, and that this was a medical condition. And yes, you were feeding them, but you were feeding them in, in a technical way that uh, it was really medicine that you were giving. It looked like milk. It smelled like milk. It tasted like milk, but it was really medicine. The liner notes in your book, we're talking about the unforgiving tide. It says the true story about a young doctor's encounters with mud, medicine, and magic on a remote South Pacific island. As eye-opening as, as that experience must have been for you, Ross, as a physician, it must have had a tremendous effect, not only as the doctor you would become because you were just starting, but also in life in general. Yes, it, it made me more uh, self-sufficient uh, as a person and as a physician, I think. It was a, a long way from any kind of help. The telephone didn't work really beyond the local town. If you wanted to phone overseas, you had to make a booking, and it echoed, and it often didn't work. There was no internet. Uh, I had a, a, a carry-on bag full of textbooks, and, and so I had to rely on textbooks and my, my own wits, really. And it's amazing what you can do uh, if you have uh, a team around you, a supportive team, people who believe in you, and the, the nuns quite quickly came to believe in me, and if they believed in me, then I could believe in myself, and we could do a remarkable amount of good. 
Now, the people were fairly fatalistic. They were realistic. They knew that we couldn't perform miracles. We couldn't perform brain surgery or open heart surgery. And so there were certain things we couldn't do and were not expected of us. And that was just part of playing the rules. But we could deliver babies safely. We could treat infections. And we could patch people up after severe accidents. And if you could do those things and you could immunize children and prevent uh, some of the common diseases like polio and tetanus and whooping cough, then you could do a lot of good. The book we uh, have been talking about that refers to Ross's two years first coming out of medical school in uh, New Guinea, it's called Unforgiving Tides. It's now in its second printing, I understand. Oh, it's had five printings. Oh, five printings. I'm behind the times. We'll, uh, we'll talk about your other books and how people can, can get them, etc. But first, let's, let's, let's now talk about it and pivot from coming back from New Guinea, and eventually you became an infectious disease specialist. Describe to me, Ross, and to, to everyone, what an infectious disease doctor does. An infectious disease doctor looks after anything that can happen uh, to the body from head to toe that is caused by an infection, a microbe, a bacteria, a virus, uh, a fungus, uh, a prion, uh, as in mad cow disease, or anything that looks like an infection. So we get sent all kinds of things that uh, are red because traditionally infections make the skin look red or you have a rash that's red and uh, it looks like an infection. So the fun, uh, the, some of the best fun I had uh, as an infectious disease specialist was sorting out things that were not infectious, that were sent to me as an infection. Well, it's not an infection, and, but I wouldn't let it go at that. I would say, well, what is it? And often it was a fascinating genetic condition that, that would be rare. Or one time we had a fellow who was covered in red marks and he was sent over by the emergency uh, uh, department because they were sure he, has an in, he had an infection, but he didn't have a fever and he wasn't quite behaving as, he had, as if he had an infection. Well, he'd fallen down the stairs in, in, a, in a drunken stupor and he was covered in bruises, but they weren't quite bruises yet, so they looked more like an infection. So you just had to ask the right question. What have you been doing recently? Uh, I enjoyed it because you're looking after every part of the body, starting at the top of the head and going down to the toes. So uh, every case is challenging and different and really makes you think. And I'm sure you had your fair share of cases of things like uh, malaria, flesh-eating disease. Yes, uh, unfortunately, flesh-eating disease became a kind of specialty of mine because of the places I worked happened to have a high incidence of, of uh, streptococcal uh, soft tissue infection that would progress to this nasty necrotizing fasciitis. And it became, uh, I had to learn how to be good at treating it uh, because we had so many cases. And, and they, they were all, it often struck uh, people in the prime of life, school-aged children and parents in their 30s and 40s, where the stakes were very high. These uh, people still had a lot of life in them left and uh, didn't want to lose any, and I'm proud to say I didn't lose any in my career of, of uh, a disease that often caused uh, people to die. Is there a relationship between your career as an infectious disease specialist and what you're now known for in retirement of writing medical mystery thrillers? Well, being an infectious disease specialist was very much being a detective. Each person comes to you because another doctor or several other doctors don't know what's wrong with them. So when somebody doesn't know what's wrong with a patient, you have to be a detective to figure out what it is before you treat them. 
And that's in many ways like being a homicide detective. You have to put the story together to figure out what happened. And uh, writing uh, medical mysteries involves death and uh, some sort of a puzzle and really was an extension of my, my career because I based them all on infections, unusual infections happening to a group of people, an, an outbreak or an epidemic. And it's the job of, of the team. In this case, my lead uh, character, Dr. Zoltan Zabo, uh, it was his job to sort it out and figure out why these people were becoming sick and was there somebody responsible for it. So the Dr. Zabo medical series, there's four books. The fifth is coming out next May. Let's have just a a very brief, because they're all quite interesting, tainted. What's the premise? The premise is uh, a group of people have what appears to be uh, mad cow disease in Canada. Mad cow disease in an outbreak has never been seen in Canada before. And what does this mean? It's quite terrifying because there there are several cases and then more cases and they, they all die. And uh, where is it coming from and how many more people are going to be affected? Book number two went from tainted to tampered. It takes place in a retirement residence. I wrote it just as my own parents were entering a retirement residence. And so I learned an awful lot about the uh, quirky things that can happen in retirement residence and the, and the, the frightening things as well. And uh, uh, there's an epidemic uh, in a retirement residence, and it turns out it's caused deliberately by, by a very nasty person with an axe to grind. What I find interesting also about these books is that uh, they're local to a degree, but they're certainly very topical of what, what people are experiencing in life in Canada these days. Well, thank you very much. I've set them in Hamilton on purpose, uh, but uh, if... if uh, readers across Canada or other countries can identify with some of the problems, uh, so much the better. I'm, I'm gratified for that. Follow-up book to uh, Tampered was Up in Smoke. Well, that's based on a very uh, real story that's uh, happening even today in uh, southwestern Ontario. Uh, Brantford is uh, very much at the centre of, of the story, and I learned this story in my outpatient clinics looking after patients uh, who would come to me and uh, would have harsh voices and have a strong smell about them. And I realized that they were, they were smoking the locally produced uh, and illegally produced tobacco products here. And that led to quite a story of, of the uh, illicit tobacco trade in Ontario. Then the most recent book about uh, almost two years ago now, this uh, is based perhaps a little bit on, on your travels. I know you and Lorna, your wife, do a lot of traveling, including cruising. And this book was called, or is called, Beneath the Wake. It takes place on a small cruise ship, very much like uh, we have sailed on many times in a part of the world that I have come to know very well, uh, Indonesia, the islands of Indonesia. I've spent quite a lot of time there. I've done some teaching in that part of the world. And uh, I, I couldn't resist setting a novel there. It's a closed uh, place mystery, very much like Agatha Christie used to write. People go to, uh, in her books, people would go to a, an old country house for the weekend and somebody would be murdered. So it had to be somebody who was uh, in the house. And so this is a ship. Uh, there's a violent storm. They, they can't get off the ship. The ship can't get into any port where there's uh, help. And it's in a part of the world where there isn't the technical expertise needed to solve the puzzle on the ship, which is a, a very nasty uh, and, death, uh, and deadly 
outbreak of an infection amongst the crew and perhaps the passengers on the ship. And so Zol Zabo happens to be with his family sailing on the ship, and it comes down to him to solve the puzzle of, the, uh, of, of what's going on. And of course, he doesn't solve it himself. Uh, Natasha Sharma, his now girlfriend and co-worker, uh, is instrumental in solving the puzzle. You're, you're, you're wanting me to go back and read these books through once again when I hear these. The fifth one is called Bitter Paradise, coming out in May of 2020. And I thought um, maybe you could give us a little tease and just read a little something from, from the book. After weeks of torture at the hands of Syria's secret police, the bombing of his villa in the ancient city of Aleppo, and the murder of his daughter, trauma surgeon Dr. Hossam Kosa flees his fractured homeland with his wife and son. They make their way to Canada as refugees, where Hossam is forced to trade his scalpel for a barber's clippers. Though he aches to regain his once prominent surgical career, cutting hair in Hamilton, Ontario, seems a safe way to make a living until a fellow Syrian is slashed to death in the barbershop. The ensuing gangland vendetta entangles Hossam and threatens his family. At the same time, epidemic investigators Dr. Zol Zabo and Natasha Sharma are battling an outbreak of vaccine-resistant polio that has struck the city with terrifying fury. When Hossam visits a friend clinging to life in the intensive care unit, he spots something that might help the polio investigation, but will ruin his chance of retaking his place in the operating theatre. The Great White North is not the sanctuary he expected, but it's a bitter paradise he must learn to navigate. So we've whet our appetite, and people can, uh, can get ready for the book. Coming out in May, and that's called Bitter Paradise. Yes, it is. Bitter Paradise. Let's talk about travel. We've, we've inferred this a little bit along the way. You spent much of your, your life growing up in, in Ottawa, but before that, you were on the prairies. You're 10 years old. You got on a train and went through the Rocky Mountains to Vancouver, all by yourself. Yes. What, 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 what were you thinking, Ross? Well, it was just natural. I was <laughs> raised on the prairies. We used to, uh, my friend Eric and I would uh, take our wagon and a pup tent and we would just walk onto the prairie out of our village because our village, uh, our village abutted the prairie. We would bring our uh, Cheerios and a bit of milk for our breakfast the next morning and the kids were raised in the 50s and 60s in a very different uh, way than they are now. The, there weren't helicopter parents. Uh, now it is quite a bigger step to put your 10-year-old on the <laughs> overnight train in a sleeper car uh, from Medicine Hat, Alberta to Vancouver, BC, which involved one overnight. Uh, the uh, food was all included. It was a sort of all-inclusive uh, ticket, and I had two maiden aunts who met me in Vancouver at the station and and uh, entertained me for the week. It was the it was the Easter break, and then they put me on the train on the way home. And nobody ever thought twice that I that I uh, anything bad would happen to me. We didn't think about uh, nasty strangers, and they knew I was responsible enough to not get off the train at the wrong spot just get off at the end and, uh, if I, and not to get off in Trail BC and be left behind. And uh, there was nothing pinned to me. Uh, I had a tongue in my head and uh, 
Off you went. Uh, off I went. I kept a little journal, which is why people know about it, and I, I still have the journal today. It's rather sweet. It, it lists all the things a 10-year-old boy would be interested in, namely the food and the animals, not the people. I guess 10-year-old boys aren't so interested in people's behavior, more animals and, and food. That was then. Fast forward to now. You and Lorna, your wife, do a lot of traveling. Where have you been? <laughs> or better yet, where haven't you been? Well, we haven't, have, we haven't been in the middle of Central Asia, and we haven't been in the darkest reaches of, of the Congo uh, in, in Africa, but we've explored most of the world by ship, and so we've been mo to pretty well all of the, the key seaports uh, in the world uh, because we do like to take long uh, trips, long journeys by, by ship. One of the advantages of uh, being on a ship, on a, on a lengthy excursion, is you get to meet people. You once observed a woman who was making some jewelry. I think it was chain mail? That's correct. She, was, uh, she had a PhD in biochemistry, and now she went on cruise ships uh, teaching people to make jewelry and to make chain mail, which is a medieval art that used to make protective uh, wearable armor against swords and lances and, and arrows. It wouldn't work against bullets. And the armorers were uh, very skilled, and they were also very strong because they used iron rings, and uh, you needed strong uh, upper body to make them. And I was intrigued that she showed another uh, gentleman how to make a chain out of silver, and it looked so beautiful. I just didn't believe that anybody could make it by hand. It looked like it had been made by some sort of machine. And she showed me how to do it, and for some reason it just, uh, it just clicked with me. It was just as I was about to retire and wondering what I wanted to do in my retirement. And it fit in very much with uh, what I liked, uh, man the many aspects of my infectious disease job uh, I liked doing was uh, using my hands creatively on the skin, draining um, abscesses on the skin. It doesn't sound very exciting, uh, or, but it was, uh, I, I did a lot of wound care, and that, that uh, was fine detail on people's skin. And this was fine detail as well. And so I sort of moved into, and instead of draining abscesses, now I make chain mail um, using my eyes and, uh, and my brain and three-dimensional space. Beautiful pieces of, of work. I recall one time we were with you and Lorna, and Lorna was uh, wearing a lovely necklace, and the next thing I knew, we're at home, and Jan's saying, that stuff is gorgeous. So, uh, phone call to Ross, and it's time for a Christmas present. You, you, you do some very unique pieces. Well, thank you very much. It is, it's fun doing it. I, find, I enjoy incorporating chain mail with uh, different stones sometimes, different colors. Uh, I, I use a lot of al aluminum and some silver and, and bronze, and uh, I've come to realize I'm a more creative person than I was raised to believe. I was uh, very much an academic kid and uh, did the math and sciences in school. Uh, creativity was not uh, fostered in any way, and now here I am in my 60s, writing books and making jewelry, uh, whoever would have believed. But perhaps I did use my creative nature in infectious diseases because it was so all-encompassing. It was from the head to toe. Every case was a puzzle. Every case did require some creativity because every case is so unique. 
So you transitioned from a meaningful life in medicine to a meaningful retirement. How do you define meaningful retirement? I guess uh, meaningful retirement is meaningful on two sides. One, it's meaningful to oneself and family, and also meaningful to others, doing, doing things uh, with uh, people who share your values, share your enthusiasm. So uh, when I, uh, I write, uh, the, the first draft is solitary, and then the editing process is a collaborative process. Uh, with my publisher, with a couple of editors, with the book designers, and then with the reading public, where I share the book with the reading public. Uh, I attend libraries and, and book clubs, and so we talk about my writing, we talk about other people's writing, we talk about, about uh, the joys of fiction. And, and so it's meaningful to me to write the books, but it's also meaningful uh, because it's a shared experience. This meaningful retirement that you're certainly celebrating and enjoying these days, it didn't just happen though, did it? No, it, I attended in Brantford, as it turned out, uh, uh, an evening, uh, I forget who it was, sponsored by, by a, a, a man and a woman who uh, wanted to talk about meaningful retirement and choosing the things about your job that you, that you love and repeating them in uh, retirement and on the other side of the coin leaving behind the parts of your employment that you did not enjoy and so you feel a, a sort of liberation but if you don't think about it ahead of time you end up having breakfast and reading the newspaper and wondering what the day will hold and the day feels very long and you, you really haven't done anything that brings you joy. I recall and I, I much had the same approach to pre-retirement. Jan and I went to a, a seminar one evening and there was a presenter there. He was a senior vice president of one of the major banks talking about his first six months of retirement that he golfed. Winter arrived, he couldn't golf. His wife basically said, you have to find something to do. And that, that's what he was talking about was there has to be something that gets you up in the morning other than going to the coffee shop and reading the newspaper and that's about it. I've always been a task-oriented person, a person who likes to learn new things, a person who likes to use his brain, and a person who likes to work collaboratively with other people. And what I have established for myself, the, the travel, the chain mail, and the writing satisfies those things uh, for me. And uh, my wife uh, has similar interests. We don't spend the entire day together. Uh, when we get back together uh, in the uh, late afternoon or early evening and start cooking supper together, then we have something to talk about. Uh, if we stay together all day, what is there left to talk about at, at supper time? That's true. So aside from writing and your jewelry making, anything else that you contemplate doing that uh, is perhaps different in your retirement? No. <laughs> You're having a rich Fulfilling I think, entirely. I, I think it's rich enough. The, the travel is very fulfilling, and there's a lot of preparation required before, before uh, travel. Lorna looks on the history of places, and I, I, I make the, the arrangements. And uh, there's making arrangements to leave a house for a prolonged period of time as well. 
I know that uh, your book launch is coming in May. Will you be doing any, any travels, any trip coming up between now and then? Oh, yes. We're, uh, we have an extended trip uh, starting in January. We'll be, home, we'll be away for uh, quite a period of time and visiting uh, uh, friends around the world and new places. We're uh, hoping to go to Samoa in, in the Pacific, where Robert Louis Stevenson, who's one of my life heroes and writing heroes, the Scottish writer who wrote The Strange Tale of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Treasure Island, amongst other books. He lived there and built a house there, and he died there as a relatively young man. And I feel some uh, identity with him, and so I'm looking forward to visiting his grave there in Samoa. Now the trouble is, just to come full circle, there's a, a measles epidemic in Samoa at the moment. I'm hoping they'll allow us on as long as we've uh, shown that we're immune to measles. I just can't help but think in the back of my mind that had they known, or will they know, that this is an infectious disease specialist who's been internationally recognized who is about to step, uh, step on their shore. Well, if they have strict rules in place, they won't care who it is. But I'm, I'm thinking adults will be along, uh, allowed on. It's really uh, mostly children and unimmunized adults, uh, young adults, who, who spread measles. So I, the ship will be mostly populated by gray-haired citizens who had measles as a child and so are immune and will not, prevent, not provide any risk to the country of Samoa. You're listening to Hospital Insider, the podcast. I'm Gary Chalk, Dr. Ross Penny has been our guest. We, we have a tradition, Ross, on, on the podcast, and I'm sure you've listened to uh, previous episodes. I ask questions of guests, and it's, it's called This and That. These are topics uh, that are right off the wall. Ross has agreed to participate in this. He doesn't know the questions, but are you set? I'm set, yes. Good. Ross, the dark winter evenings that are ahead, where would we find you after dinner? Watching television? Or reading? Watching television and then reading. And then reading. What are you watching on television? Well, we've really got onto Netflix and we've been watching so much Netflix we've had to pay for extra internet time. Uh, we really love the British po um, police procedures, uh, procedurals. We, we uh, enjoy them immensely. There are a lot of them, some better than others, but they really do hold our interest. And after you watch television, you read. What books are you reading? Well, I've just finished Rogue Heroes by Ben McIntyre, which is a nonfiction book about the British SAS, how it started. That was the Special Aerial Services, a sort of commando group, started in the Second World War and continues to this day and has spawned the American Navy SEALs. So uh, really very gripping, personally uh, written vignettes, stories about these uh, fascinating men. You, you discussed, or you at least mentioned, Ross, about uh, meeting up with Lorna later in the day and preparing dinner. Do you enjoy cooking, and what are some of the specialties you do? Well, I enjoy cooking without recipes. Uh, I, I enjoy seeing what's in the fridge and seeing what creative thing one can cook uh, in half an hour uh, out of whatever happens to be in, in the fridge. Lorna does the baking and makes the desserts. And, of course, she, she does the regular cooking as well. But I cook at least half the time or a little bit more. Let's go back to travel with a question. What's the most interesting trip that, that you've taken? I think the most interesting country, absolutely fascinating country, is Saudi Arabia. And I was there as a visiting professor in the early 90s. They asked me to come over as a pediatric infectious disease specialist, spend two weeks with them. They put me up. They looked after me very well. 
I knew the doctors because I had trained them in Canada and now they were working in Saudi, back home in Saudi Arabia. And the place is just fascinating because of, of the way they, uh, they keep men and women separate and women are cloaked and you can't see them. And uh, you, you have to knock on a door every time you enter a door because there could be an uncovered woman in the door and you have to give her a moment or two to cover herself up. It was uh, something I had, of course, never experienced before and trying to get one's head around it uh, at the same time being treated so well by the, the people uh, as, and getting into their homes uh, and was fascinating. When you and Lorna prepare dinner for this evening, red wine or white wine? Red wine. We also like white wine, but uh, if you ask me to choose, and be red is a little bit more complex. Yes. Anything on your bucket list that you haven't done that's in the back of your mind? Well, uh, I think it would be quite fascinating to take the train across Russia uh, from Moscow to Vladivostok. Uh, you can do it two ways. One, you spend nine months learning Russian, so you can do it on your own, because really you would not be able to do it if you didn't speak the language. And the other is to take a sanitized version. They run once or twice a year for wealthy uh, tourists from English-speaking countries, and they, they take you in a luxury train. It would be nice to be able to do a hybrid of that, so it felt a little bit more natural, more like the real experience, uh, rather than uh, uh, totally sanitized in, in ultimate luxury and, uh, and dividing yourself away from the, the usual Russian people. Now, we are taking a small train journey in India from the southern uh, city of Kochi up to Mumbai, which is a 24-hour journey. We're going in second-class uh, air-conditioned sleeper, and we're really looking forward to that. It's going to be kind of fun. As we come to the conclusion of the podcast, Ross, we mentioned, as we were discussing your books, where can people find out more about your books and, and, and in fact, be able to order them? Well, the books are available wherever you buy books. So uh, in bookstores, independent bookstores, such as A Different Drummer in Burlington or The Green Heron in Paris, but any, any independent, any chain bookstore like Chapters Indigo on the, on the internet, Amazon, and my website will help you, and that's rosspenny.ca. Very easy to find. This concludes episode number five of Hospital Insider, the podcast. Dr. Ross Penny has been our guest. It's early January 2020. It's, it's the new year. So, Ross, on behalf of Jan and myself, I want to wish you and Lorna a very, very happy, a very healthy 2020, and much success on your new book, which uh, I'm sure Bitter Paradise will prove to be uh, a real page-turner for those who have followed your books. Thank you for being with us. Thank you very much, Gary, for giving me the opportunity, and uh, best of luck to you in the new year. It'll be fun. We'll have you back sometime and hear about more books and more travels. That would be great. I'd enjoy that. Thanks for listening to Hospital Insider, the podcast, a presentation of the Brandt Community Healthcare System. Hospital Insider, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting forum. Please press subscribe, and you will always be up to date with Hospital Insider, the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please pass it along to your friends. Encourage them to subscribe as well. It's appreciated. 
In two weeks, we'll return with a new episode of Hospital Insider, the podcast with Gary Chalk. Thank you for listening. I'm Sandy Bishop.